just all the ways that he's at work in, in our lives, in our church, in the world. We uh, want to continue to walk by faith and not by sight. We want to continue to grow in the truths that he has revealed to us in his written word, holding so precious these things, submitting ourselves to them, uh, conforming our lives to them uh, in all the beautiful ways that he is sanctifying us and, and um, growing us, helping us. Um, and so I just pray that today's time in the Word is a great encouragement to you. It's a great help to your life. And it's been a joy to spend many hours with the Lord this week and study and prayer and this passage that we're in. We uh, are in this last closing remarks of uh, John's first letter. So if you grab your Bibles with me and turn to the letter of 1 John, you'll find it in the very back of your Bible. I'd uh, love to encourage you to follow along with me in the Bible and just continue to become familiar with God's Word. Uh, we're in chapter 5 today, preaching verse 16 through 18, and um, thrilled for what the Lord's prepared. I've titled today's sermon, Fighting Sin as Those Who Have Overcome It. And I pray that we'll come into greater view as we study this morning. Pray with me, church, and we'll dig in. First John five sixteen through 18. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Father, we thank you for this day that you have given us, uh, the work of your sovereign hand to uh, ordain this day for each of us, that you would wake us, you would cause the many members of our body and mind to work, that we could function enough to, to get here, to be here, that you would ordain, that we would gather to worship you, to pray, to fellowship, to study your word, and be prepared, um, first and foremost, to, to know you, to be prepared for judgment day, because we uh, know Christ. Lord, those who are here today who do not know Christ, I pray it would be your sovereign will to give them saving faith, new life in Christ. Uh, secondly, Lord, beyond knowing you, to, to, to know your word and to be um, sanctified and, and uh, encouraged and challenged and, sanct and um, admonished to, to grow, to mature in what is true, to combat a world of lies and deception. Um, and we just want to be good stewards of it with this day you've given us. And if you give us tomorrow, then tomorrow. Uh, but what a joy it is. We don't want to take for granted any of this. So become grateful, grateful for your many provisions to allow us to be here, grateful for your patience and love for us, and, and looking to really be in tune with you. Lord, your word says that you are here. I pray that we would be most present. Putting out of mind the the longings of the flesh, maybe for something on the docket later today or this week, the, the distractions of life, putting those out of mind to really focus on your word and what you have for each of us according to it. Do your work, Lord God. We pray confidently because of Christ. Amen. 
In this opening verse of the, today's passage, verse 16, let me read it again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Here in verse 16, John continues to talk about the blessing that it is to be able to pray to God the Father through the mediation of God the Son by the power of God the Holy Spirit. And in this, he continues to build up and encourage the brethren, the the body of Christ, those whom he's writing to, He's trying to encourage them, build them up in these final verses of the letter, these final comments, just a few verses away from finishing. John's specific focus in this portion of his closing remarks is to highlight that prayer is an important wartime weapon for the beloved as sin is still very real. And at work and knocking on the door, temptation still knocks on the door of every believer. And it must be combated and turned from. As those who now belong to Christ, we need to take sin seriously. To not play light with the things that are offending to God and His glory. And this means that when we see sin at work, in a brother or sister in Christ, we turn to prayer. A prayer, a a legitimate, powerful tool that the Lord has given us in this time to utilize. Church, what we don't do when we see a brother or sister in Christ in sin, we don't turn to gossiping, talking about that with others. We don't turn to pointing a finger at them. We don't turn a blind eye to the situation. We don't turn to puffing up in self-righteous pride, somehow feeling a, a level of superiority over the one who's struggling. No, John is clear. We honor the Lord. We love our beloved by going to prayer for them. We do this because prayer is a powerful weapon that the Lord has given us in our fight against sin and deception, which we're still very much in in these times and days that we find ourselves in. Consider with me just a few examples in Scripture where fighting for our brother and sister in Christ who's struggling to sin is elevated and present. And one of the first things that comes to mind as I was studying is just Paul's words at the end of his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 6, a passage you're probably familiar with. Hear it fresh with me this morning. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, he says, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, 
with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. There's a call to put our armor on, to get dressed for battle each day, that we're aware of the battle that we're in, that sin is lurking, that temptation is knocking, the enemy is scheming. Are we aware of these things? And like John, we see here, Paul is calling for a fervent and unceasing practice of prayer for the saints. That we can't neglect this constant warning, this constant encouragement given to the church. And this is because prayer is powerful. It's a powerful tool that God has given us in this spiritual battle that we're in. And and let me help pick at something that I think is important to remember, and that is that prayer is not powerful in and of itself. It is powerful because of the one we lean into, we surrender to, we turn to by faith, we submit to. It's powerful because we're talking to God. Because God is powerful. Right? I get frustrated sometimes when people maybe don't see that right. Like, oh, the power of prayer. And they just stop there. I'm like, ah, is that really all you see? Like, or is what you really mean by that is the power of God through the vehicle of prayer? Like, praise to God. But the power is the Lord. That's a different sermon. <laughs> Church, notice with me that we're not called to just suit up and sit around. We are called to suit up and to pray, and to pray at all times. We're to keep alert by making supplication for all the saints. Church, are you practicing prayer for all the saints? Are you praying for one another? Is this a discipline of your life, practice of your days, of your interactions with people? Right. I've always said, I, I want disciples, church, family to be known as a people who pray. Not because we tell you we're going to pray, but because if you interact with us, we're going to pray for you right there. I love that. I love when I see you interacting before and after service, when I see you out and amongst people that, that we're not going to, oh, I'll pray for you. No, no I'm just going to pray for you right now. We just go to prayer. We just, we just, we'd be praying. We'd be a praying people. We wouldn't put it on our list to do later. We'd, we'd do it right then. we hang up the phone. When we sit in the car, we, while we're along the road, we would just be praying, talking and walking with God. Are you praying for one another? Especially when your brother or your sister is struggling. And especially when they're struggling with sin. John says here in verse 16, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask. And God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. I'll focus on the not leading to death emphasis in a minute, but let's stay focused here. We need to ask the Lord for his help, for his strength, and perfect will to be done for our brother and sister. We need to not neglect this practice. To not try to just handle it on our own and skip praying. But to use the most powerful resource God has given us, himself. To go to him. To bring that brother or sister to him before the feet of the king. 
Jesus modeled this well for us. Jesus modeled this. I want you to watch carefully something unique we see in this moment. Jesus praying for Peter, also called Simon. Luke twenty-two thirty-one through 32 Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew, because he's God eternal, that Peter was chosen of God. Part of his elect, that Peter had saving faith. So that therefore then, the sins that Peter would struggle with, and really struggle would not lead to spiritual death. He knew this. And so he prayed for his brother. He prayed for his endurance and faith. He prayed for the ways God would use him, and specifically use him after his struggling, to strengthen the other brothers in Christ. Right? That's his prayer. But but notice another layer we see here, and I think it's really important, because it challenges maybe where we miss this. Jesus knows that Peter's going to repent. He's not concerned that he's going to fall off. He knows he's going to repent. Why? Jesus, again, he knows all things. But in knowing that Peter's going to repent, does that keep Jesus from praying for him in his struggle? It does not. He still goes to prayer. And in this models for us that we should too. That we don't override this good, wonderful uh, part of our theology of the perseverance of the saints that I really don't need to pray. I know this brother's going to figure it out. And so I just, I just have confidence in that. So I leave it alone. No, no, we still need to pray for each other. Jesus models this for us. Even when we know that a brother or sister belongs to God, because of Christ's finished work on their behalf, we don't let the, their eternal security keep us from utilizing the powerful practice of prayer, of turning to the Lord, of doing what Scripture calls us to do. No, we go to the Lord, we go to Him quickly, we go to Him often. Praying for each other is a real way that we love each other, that we hold up our brethren, especially in hard and struggled times. Paul experienced this, as we study the New Testament, in profound ways. You have this wonderful example of, of a, a righteous man, a, a, a brother in Christ who was transformed mightily from a lot of wicked, self-righteous ways unto a, a lifetime of suffering, unto a lifetime of injustice and, and, and imprisonment and, and beatings. And Paul went through it. And Paul knew the prayers of his brothers and sisters in Christ were very meaningful for his journey. Listen to how he speaks of it in Philippians 1.19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. This, this thing that the Lord's given us to pray for each other, you guys, it's big. It's important. We need to take it seriously. We can become very disciplined in growing in God's truths. In even getting dressed every day in the armor of God. But can also at the same time become very negligent 
in really walking with God and talking with God moment by moment, submitting ourselves to him and bringing all things to him in prayer. Church, we must go to God in constant prayer. This is a sweet gift he has given us, not just on occasion, not just in an emergency, but all the time. Learning to truly walk and talk with him. The enjoyment of what it is that I've been reconciled to God the Father. And this is, this is not just a kind of connection where I only have so many minutes a month. But it's all the time. And so why would we not enjoy that journey with him? Walking and talking, being in tune. If we are in touch with God, in tune with God, and, this, and mindful of his holy presence and power, at work in our lives, nothing's going to get in our way. So it's a great gift he gives us. Now, we can also do other things, practical, actual things, to come alongside a brother or sister who's struggling, and specifically struggling with sin. And we should. Scripture gives us plenty of places where we're called to that. I'll give you one example in just a moment we find in Galatians. But... Let's not miss John's point here. He says that we are first and foremost to pray for them. You see them in sin, struggling with sin, to pray for them. John Bunyan, late author of old, said it so well. I've really enjoyed meditating on this quote this week. I pray it's a blessing to you. Listen to it carefully. We can do more than prayer after we have prayed. But we cannot do more than pray until we have prayed. There's some depth there, church. I pray you really chew on that. Let me read it one more time. We can do more than prayer after we have prayed. But we cannot do more than pray until we have prayed. Let us not be guilty of skipping prayer and trying to get right to what we got to do. But to go to God. To really be in sync with him. Right? I, I often say, and I try to help you really think about it this way, in my belief, prayer is much less about getting God to do what we hope and want him to do, and much more about a vehicle that he's given us to prepare us to join him in what he's going to do. That's really the gift of prayer. To be reoriented, to be in tune, to remember he's on the throne. This, this crazy thing's happening, this injustice is happening, this, this sickness, this death of a loved one, you're in the midst of this tragic moment. Prayer is the gift to be reoriented to the power and the sovereignty of the hand of God at work and getting ready to join him in what he's going to do. Let us not just intend to pray. Let us not just tell them we'll pray and then not do it. Let us pray. And pray right then and pray often. For, the, for a, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The words of James chapter 5, verse 16. If you are here today and you're like, man, I really would love to understand prayer better, um, to, to grow in my practice of prayer. We recently in our midweek gathering taught on prayer. I was blessed to get to teach it. Um, and would love to share those teachings with you. And so if you're interested in that, just email me, email the staff, all that contacts on the back of your bulletin. We'd love to share some of that with you for you to do some home study or to circle back to some of that and really 
dig in and grow in that area. I pray that's a blessing for you as well. Now, God's Word, as I mentioned a moment ago, is often to instruct us about the ministry we are to have in coming alongside each other, especially when one of us is caught up in sin. One of my favorite places we see this is Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him to a sp- in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. First, who is Paul referring to here for a moment when he says, you who are spiritual? Because I think we can all kind of find a way to get out of a lot of this because we kind of think, well, that's the job of the pastors. That's the job of the spiritually mature group leaders, whoever those people might be. You who are spiritual is not to speak of the spiritually mature or the shepherds. It is anyone who is in the Holy Spirit, walking in the Spirit. This is how Paul has referenced this throughout this entire letter in Galatians. It is someone who, as he says in Galatians 5.18, is led by the Spirit. Someone who in Galatians 5.16.25 is walking by the Spirit. Someone who, according to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, is bearing the fruit of the Spirit. If you are saved, you are empowered with the Holy Spirit. If not, you're not saved. That, that spiritual awakening is the work of the Spirit, coming on board, coming to dwell within you. And so if you, Christian, have the Holy Spirit within you, then this is for you. Hear it again. If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, those who are saved, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, so fulfill the law of Christ. We have a work to do in the body of Christ, looking out for and helping our blood-bought family when especially they get caught up in sin. Brothers and sisters in Christ, they will need you. Your brothers and sisters will need you. They will need your humble, kind, present, truthful, accountability, help. They'll need your prayer. They'll need you to come alongside them. This is how God has set the table for us, who are exiles in this land, to endure the temptations and the trappings in this sin-drenched world that we currently live in until he takes us to glory. We are indeed our brother's keeper. What a privilege it is to walk with our blood-bought family and whatever they might need to fight sin and to honor God, right? let's, Let's cherish that and let's be active in it. Look with me at the next part of verse 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Sin that leads to death, sin that doesn't lead to death. Why such a a big emphasis on this? says there's sin that leads to death. Why is that so important? What's the clarity? What's what's happening here in these words? Almost as you read these few verses, you can almost trip on them. You've got to slow down. Read them carefully. What is really being said here? 
Because John right here in verse 17 is clear to say all wrongdoing is sin. Paul will say in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Sin, our sin before the Holy God leads to death. So, so what's the uniqueness of the clarity of sin that doesn't lead to death and sin that does? Well, we have to slow down when you reach passages like this. Make sure that I'm coming to a right understanding. Um, what is he trying to emphasize here? And to do that, like so much of Scripture, we need to not say, oh, here's what I think. Maybe you've grown up in the church and you've gone to Bible studies where the, the main part, the main Bible study looks like this. We all circle up and we read a passage and then we just spend the whole time just hearing what everyone thinks it means. That's a terrible way to do Bible study. Because, because it means something specific. Something that is to be understood rightly according to Scripture and is one of the main roles of shepherds for the sheep to help you understand it rightly, historically and accountability. Not just what do I think it means all by myself. I mean, even in, in, in all the 15 to 20 hours a week I put in the sermon prep, much of what I'm doing is to slow down and not just how do, what do I think this is saying, but is to read giants of the faith, theologians of old who are dead and gone, proven guys, to read many different commentaries so that I'm not just grabbing hold of the thing that I, that I like all by itself, but it's challenged by each other. It's tested. It's vetted. When we read Scripture, we need to read it according to Scripture. Because Scripture is not going to contradict itself. God is a God of clarity. Okay? And so we want to understand it according to Scripture, not according to tradition, not according to what I want it to say, not according to what I think would make my life better or not. What does Scripture say according to Scripture? And then specifically, what is it saying within the context of its passage? It's really easy to take a lot of things out of its context and make Scripture say something that's not. So that is helpful for us here to understand why the uniqueness of this phrasing that he's using, some sin leads to death, some sin doesn't. What is he referring to here? So when we look to the context of this letter, we, this today is sermon number 39 in this five-chapter letter. 39 weeks we've been studying it. Praise God. It's a joy to slow down and be on this journey to, to gain so much um, in that journey together. But sometimes it's also along that way helpful to just sit and just read the whole letter as you would read a whole letter written to you. And, and in the reading of the letter that way, you're reminded of some of that global context in one sitting. And so it's, and you've heard me do this all throughout the way, constantly referring back to what John's already said, helping us understand what he's saying here. So looking at the context of this letter, the sin that leads to death is reference to the unbelief that some have, that Jesus is the Christ. That people don't believe that he's the Christ. They don't believe he's eternally the Son of God. That he died and rose again for the sins of his people. The sin that leads to death is the denial of faith in Jesus. It is the damning and ongoing practice of all those who deny Christ. Therefore, they remain outside of Christ, 
and therefore remain in their sin, guilty in their sin, and therefore earn spiritual and eternal death. That's the sin that leads to death, is a denying of Christ as Lord, is not to have faith in him. In the context of this letter, Paul has, John has regularly spoken of this being the position of the false teachers, those who are anti-Christ, who are guilty of polluting the brethren with false teaching, promoting false doctrine and heresy among them. This is much of what John is contesting in the writing of this letter to these believers who are being soaked up with all this nonsense. Again, where we've seen this earlier in the letter, look with me. 1 John chapter 4, 1-3. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. By denying that Jesus is the Christ, not submitting one's life to him in faith, they solidify the death their sin earns before a holy God. Another place we saw this was in chapter 2, 1 John 2, 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. So John is constantly in this letter referencing those who are anti-Christ, anti-Jesus. They're against him. They deny him. They falsely testify about him. These are people who are sinfully corrupt and do not speak truth. Instead, they speak lies. Jesus is clear in Matthew 12, 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. You either trust Jesus and obey Jesus and belong to Jesus, or you are against Jesus. Understand there is no middle ground. Understand with me that to be anti-Christ, you don't have to be some kind of crazy demon or deranged person. You can look very normal, very sweet, very kind, and be anti-Jesus. You just have to be dead in sin and full of self-deception and not trust your life to Jesus in salvation to be anti-Christ. Some are deemed anti-Christ in the context of this letter, less necessarily about the depth of their depravity, but more about the reality of their activity is much of what John is speaking to. They were active in revealing their deceived views, their fleshly agenda, that they were blatantly against Jesus. Those who stood against Christ were denying fundamental truths about Jesus that make them false teachers. They were promoting lies and deception, false understanding. Worse, they were heretics because their lies were about fundamental truths of God aimed at leading people astray 
aimed essentially at promoting a false gospel. Church, we have to be on guard against false teaching, against heretical teaching, because in its aim, it's not only to lie, it's to lead people astray. Right? To think that they believe in the right thing when they don't. Peter warned of this in 2 Peter 2.1. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. I've taught earlier in our series about this passage. I wanted to remind you again. Destructive heresies here, in other translations, is translated damnable heresies. Heresy is false belief or false doctrine that goes against Scripture that leads to destruction. It's fundamental. In other words, you believe what it's telling you and you don't believe the true gospel. You don't believe in the true God. Therefore, you're damned because there's only life in the true God. Heresy is such an error or an offense to God that it causes people to believe in a different God or a different gospel. It's an error that means a person is not saved. They do not belong to God. So again, why is this so important? Why does John keep circling back to this again and again in this letter? To avoid, identify heresies, avoid it, avoid these false teachers. It is because it is a matter, matter of life and death. Because what they're promoting leads to death. It's not just like, oh, this guy's going to figure it out. He'll have to pay his fine later. It's not something simple. It's not something temporary. It's eternal. Heresy or error of misbelief that Jesus is not eternally God the Son, that he did not incarnate, that he did not fulfill the work of the promised Messiah, is not just defective theology. It is diabolical theology. It means of the devil. It has an aim to lead people to damnation. It is sin that leads to death. John says, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. He says, I do not say that one should pray for that. He's not saying that we don't pray for God to save the lost, because even the worst of sinners, if God ordains it, can be saved. But what he's illuminating here is that the confidence we have when we pray for a brother or sister in Christ who is saved, who, who is caught up in sin that does not lead to death, right? They have real sin going on in their life. But because they have eternal life, remember we spent that time last week, they possess eternal life, they're claimed by God. Therefore, the sin that they're practicing, the, so they're not practicing, the sin they're caught up in, it does not lead to death. They have eternal life. He's talking about people who are outside of Christ. They're depraved and enslaved to sin. All they know is sin. Praying for the depraved, enslaved sinner to not sin is a pointless prayer. Why? Because they can't not sin. They must first be reborn. So we pray for our lost friends and family to that it be God's will to save them, but that belongs to the Lord, and we trust that to Him. What we don't do is keep praying that the sinner enslaved to sin is going to stop sinning, because they, even if they do good stuff, it's still sin. Why? Because without faith in the Lord, it's not the good things they do is not unto the glory of the Lord, therefore it's still sinful. 
So th th that's all he's saying there, and you don't need to pray for that. It, he's just acknowledging the reality of these two very different contrasts of life. Lo death in sin, apart from Christ, all I do is sin, and the one who's saved by Christ, alive in Christ, eternal, the power of God to bring conviction, the power of God to bring repentance. We pray for them, and the Lord will deliver them. Why? Because he's going to keep all of his sheep to the end. He loses none of them. Because he will finish what he started. I mean, we just go verse after verse. He's going to see it through. So not only do we love and enjoy and practice praying for them, we know that he, he's going to complete what he began in them. Praise the Lord. Isn't that good? So, this contention, I do not say that one should pray for them. It, it kind of fits along the lines of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6. When he instructs the disciples, do not give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. There is a pointless pursuit of prayer or plea to seek that those who are dead in sin, that they not sin. For all they know how to do is sin until they are reborn. It's why if you're here and you have not truly trusted your life to Christ, you don't just need a little more church. You don't just need to get your act a little more together. No, if anything, you, you increase the wrath you're heaping up on you to be closer to the truths of God and still not receive them. But it is our deep prayer that by remaining near and hearing the word taught, that it is God's will and intention to save you. And it's our deep prayer that he will. But it may pragmatically feel like you're doing a little better. Until salvation, you're not. You're not. You need to be saved. Maybe you're less of a knucklehead. Maybe you're, you are doing some things less worse than you were. You st it's still all sin. You still are desperate for salvation in Christ. Anyone else selling you something different, selling you religion, that's damnable. Jesus alone, belonging to him, trusting him, walking by faith in him, is salvation, is life, is what honors God. Nothing else. I pray you hear that with all love from me as we continue to pray for your salvation. John said it plainly, 1 John 5, 12, earlier in our chapter. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. John's emphasis here in verse 16 is that we can be assured that God hears and will answer the prayers of the saved for those who have trusted their lives to Christ, even though they still are struggling with some sin. Sin that doesn't lead to death. They will repent. If they truly belong to Him, they will overcome. Praise the Lord. For those whom God has saved, He will lose none. God is a perfect batting average. Right? All he has set out to save, he saves, and he keeps them until the end. They will endure to the end in faith, if they are truly saved. This is John's emphasis in our next verse. Look with me at verse 18. We know, we know, church, 
We know, brother, sister in Christ, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. He was born of God, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Again, John's already emphasized this in this letter. Look back at chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John's emphasis earlier in that chapter, 1 John 3, 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So, when he says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, that's not saying they never sin again. Like they're perfect all of a sudden, no more sin. No, only one lived that way, Christ. Okay? We who belong to him, who are saved by him, we will still have times, even seasons, even deep struggle with sin. The key is we will not practice it in an unrepentant way. For we belong to the Lord now. The power to see our sin, to confess it humbly, to turn from it unto what is righteous to the Lord, is in us now. So you don't practice it unrepentantly like you did when you were enslaved to sin prior to salvation. This is his emphasis throughout the letter. All this getting to something very important. That... Only those who know Jesus are saved by Jesus are outside of the damnable reality of being enslaved to sin. All you do is sin. Every one of us conceived of the seed of Adam, right? Mother and father who conceived us is from Adam and Eve ultimately, are conceived in sin, given original sin, and then go on to prove that sin. Until salvation, it's all we knew. Therefore, everyone is desperate for new birth in Christ alone. Paul says, Romans 5.12, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. When Adam, our federal head, mankind's federal head, sinned, his inner nature was transformed by his sin of rebellion, bringing him... Spiritual death and depravity, which would then be passed on to everyone in his line, everyone who come after him, all of us. Certainly, we all inherit genetic and physical characteristics from our parents. We also inherit our sinful nature from our first parents through our parents. Through Adam, mankind's inherent inclination, therefore, is to sin. And as a result, we, we sin. We, we sin in thought, we sin in action, we, our feelings are sinful. And in all this, we violate God's laws and His commands to do what's righteous. We, we, apart from Christ, we practice sin. It's what we do. We commit lawlessness. Paul spoke well of this condition speaking to the believers, speaking of their former condition, now they're saved. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were spiritually dead. Alive physically, spiritually dead. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
Those who practice sin are actively committed to following the prince of the power of the air. That's the devil. Satan is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? Those who practice sin unrepentantly. Those who are unrepentantly given to their disobedience. The consequences of one's spiritual deadness in sin, their being given to sin, their relentless practice of selfishness and sin, is spiritual death, is eternal wrath. Eternal wrath from God. And even worse than that, you say, what could be worse than spiritual death and forever torment and God's wrath? It is not knowing personally the one true God, being separated from him. That's even worse. Greatest thing we could ever have or know is to know him personally. But the good news is for those of us whom God has given saving faith, who he's given new birth, we are forgiven of our sin, past, present, and future. We are given the Holy Spirit, and so we are no longer enslaved to only sin, but we now have a power at work within us to honor God. 1 John 3, 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Do you see it right there? John's already said this in this very letter. You cannot keep practicing sin. The Spirit of God is in you. The conviction He brings, the power the, the, will move you to repentance, to turning from it, so you don't keep practicing it. Yeah, you may really screw up bad, even for a season, a, a real time of your life, but the true believer will find their way to true repentance. So in Christ, when we're saved, we are sanctified at salvation. Let me talk about that. that. What that is, is that when the Holy God looks upon you, He sees in Christ Jesus' perfect righteousness. And therefore the Holy God says, Christ's perfection on you meets my holy standard, and therefore you are mine. I can be reconciled to you. We can have relationship now and forever. Because he has sanctified you in the imputation of Christ's righteousness over you. Right? You're deemed holy. You're called a saint. We're constantly referred to, the, the believers are referred to as saints, not because these are, you know, they, they do everything right, no, because of who they are in Christ. That's one side of sanctification as it's applied to us in salvation. Okay. The other side of sanctification is a progressive work of God in our lives, what we call progressive sanctification. Progressive work of God in the regenerated man or woman that helps us fight sin, temptation, mature in our faith and obedience and become more and more like Christ in our day-to-day lives. So when you are born again and God gives you saving faith, you may be a a very mature person in life. You may be an older person in life, have lived a lot of life. You maybe have accomplished a lot of things. But in that moment of your salvation, you are an infant in your faith. Right? You were just born spiritually. You did not know spiritual awakening. Now all of a sudden you do. Therefore now... You have a new journey of the Lord's work in you to mature you in faith, to mature you in Christ-likeness, to mature you 
in sanctifying you in holiness, to do what is holy, to, to do less of what is fleshly and sinful, to more of what is holy and God-honoring. That is your journey in your life in Christ. That's progressive sanctification. This is wonderful news. But what it also means is what John is speaking to here. The Christian, the true Christian, will still have struggle with sin. Because we're not, we're not, perf- we're not glorified yet. When, when brought to glory, we will no longer struggle with sin, fight sin, be tempted with sin. We, we, we will be in glory. Praise God. It's going to be amazing. Your body, all the ways your body's letting you down, all the ways your mind's letting you down, all that's done. Restored you fully transform you in glory. Look forward to it. In the meantime, we fight sin. We mature to turn from it, to identify it, to combat it, to do what honors the Lord. So here, verse 18 again now, with all that under our feet, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Remember, that doesn't mean sin at all. That means practice unrepentant sin like we used to. They do not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. This this is so good, church. This is good for our souls this morning. We must never lose sight of this truth, no matter what we face. When John says, the evil one does not touch us, what is that in reference to? First, it's reference to the fact that Jesus Christ has defeated the devil on our behalf. Okay? I'm going to read you a wonderful proclamation of this by Paul to the Colossians. First service was very weak in hearing it. Let's see if you do a little better. I read it again to them and it got better. They, they were really focused on the paint color. I don't know. They just got distracted. Because this is major. Listen to this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him, in Christ. That's that's what He did for you, Christian. Praise the Lord. Amen? Jesus said to the disciples in Luke 10, 18-19, He said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Praise the Lord. John 10, Jesus says, 27-29, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Praise the Lord. We are protected by God, which means the evil one cannot have us. It means we will not return to our old enslavement to sin. We will not return to sin that leads to death. For we have eternal life and the power of God to protect us and keep us all the way through. 
For we have been given life eternal in Christ. Listen to the doxology of Jude, verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So when John says the evil one does not touch them, he, he doesn't mean Satan can't impact our life in the here and now, because Satan can greatly impact our life in the here and now. But Satan can't have us, get us, claim us, or undo us. Christian, do you know this? You must know this. You must understand rightly who you are in Christ and what it means for God to lay claim to your life and your salvation. Yes, you will struggle. Yes, you will suffer. But you belong to God. You have eternal life in Christ. Paul spoke to this well. I read you this passage recently, and it's just so good in this moment. It's good to return to it. Hear it fresh with me this morning. 2 Corinthians 4. 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Let me pause there for a second before I read the rest. Some of you, at times, or maybe right now, lately, have allowed yourself to be very caught up in feeling very disappointed, bummed out, depressed, whatever solemn ways you're struggling with the fact that you are a jar of fragile clay. Fragile, brittle. We can get overly focused on that reality. It's true. Let us not forget what the Lord has made clear that He is using that so that to show the surpassing power belongs to the Lord and not to us. You need to not forget that in your weakness He is stronger. The narrative of people who only have this life is to be strong, is to prove something, is to make something. It's all they've got. You don't live in that narrative. Paul understood what it is to be weak and to celebrate that because in that weakness, in his suffering, in his beatings, in his false imprisonment, in his loss of loved ones, the power of the Lord got to be put on display. And that was the purpose of his days. We exchange the narrative of the temporary that we had before Christ for the new narrative. And that is, and so I say it with love, Christian, I know that for some of you it is hard lately. This fragile place that you are in is ordained by God so that the power of the Lord, the grace of the Lord, the love of the Lord is seen in you. So, so, so don't be careful not to come back to him and say, I just want, I want to trade it in. 
It would be something way more tough, way more shiny. Because, because then we wouldn't get to do that as much. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way. So, John says, he won't touch us. What does that mean? Paul makes clear, we are afflicted in every way. So it doesn't mean we're not going to be afflicted. It does mean we are not crushed. Afflicted, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. You might be really persecuted, really heavily, not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. I know some of you are like, I'm so tired every day, I feel like I'm just knocked down on my back. But you're not destroyed, Christian. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Yes, we will struggle. Yes, we will suffer. Yes, we can even be killed. But Satan can't have us. And we're no longer bound by sin. Praise be God. We belong to Christ now and forever. Some of you are you're grossly frustrated at part of the narrative of your life. It's not going the way you want it to go. Or maybe what is about to happen or is happening is really gnarly. I mean, tragic loss could be real 10 minutes from now, today before we're done. That you're no longer a spouse, you're no longer a parent because they're gone. Because they left you. God is at work in all of that. You have to have a biblical view of these things so that like the giants who came before us who all went through this stuff, continued in faith. Embraced that fragile jar of clay to put on display the power of Christ in the gospel testimony. Continue to steward the days God gives us for His purposes, for His glory. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but we, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. This is good news that John intends to embolden the hearers he's writing to, and God intends for it to embolden you Christians here today in the preaching of this passage. And I pray it does this. 
in you. And so I'm done today, but I'm not done. Because I want to read to you one other passage. It's a whole chapter. That I, as I prepped and I studied, I just couldn't help but continue to see the correlation. And it's a, a chapter that blesses me a lot with God's good truths. And I just pray as I read this very lengthy chapter to you, that you just let it wash over you and, and minister to you and prepare to move us into a time of worship, corporate worship, and just our response to the sermon today. It comes from another apostle, it comes from, from Paul, and it comes out of his letter to the Romans, and it is chapter 8. Listen to it with me, church. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of life is life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. 
The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with Patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches our hearts knows what the mind, what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more, more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Glory to God. Praise the Lord for He is good and has done a mighty work to redeem us. To give us each other to walk with and to pray for. To keep us, that He would keep us from spiritual death and keep us from the evil one. So may we be diligent Keep fighting sin as those who have overcome it in the power of Christ Jesus. May this happen by His grace and for His glory. Pray with me. Lord, You have blessed us today with access to Your written revelation. What You, the holy, eternal, perfect, Almighty God, want us to know you've given us in your word. And so I I just pray we would cherish it more than we do. I pray we would dwell in it more than we do. I pray that we would submit ourselves to it more than we do. That if there's conviction that needs confession and repentance, we'd go to work. We'd do that. If if there's emboldening of faith to get out of our pit of despair and our wallowing and our whining, that we do that. That we would embrace the opportunity you give us today, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what lot you've ordained, to steward them for your glory, that you would be on display, the gospel would be at work. That those who you have before time set out to save, you will save. We pray you would do that for those who are listening, those who are here, tuning in later, who are desperate for new life in Christ, that they would see the depth of their sin and confess it and trust their lives to you because you have given them new birth, because the Spirit has come on board to give them saving faith. What a moment in that life that will forever be. I pray it be so for many. That they would not keep that to themselves, the greatest news to ever come upon them. They would share it so that in their infancy, in their spiritual faith, we could begin to walk with them. And that in that salvation, the old man is dead and a new man begins to emerge. Even as we just read in Romans 8, Lord, that that, that thing that we can do or we kind of want to say, oh no, this is just who I am. This is how we put away that old man. Bury him six feet under. For we are new in Christ. We are able to do what you've called us to in Christ. For your glory and others' good. Hear us, Lord, as we sing of these truths, as we prepare to fellowship and, and support and pray for and walk with each other in these days you give us under the sun until you call us to glory. We love you. We pray confidently because of Christ. Amen.